Gratitude That's my everyday What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Quantum Coffee. Today's guest is Dr. John Leaf, and we had a pretty incredible conversation. Dr. John is a neuropsychiatrist, I think is what he said, Um, but he's been studying a wide variety of things. We start off talking about brain health, you know, as an athlete. Um, you know, my brain health and being proactive with my brain health has been a big part of my journey and spiritual awakening because it got me into all these proactive modalities like meditation, just even fueling my body right and uh, learning, growing, um, traveling, all these experiences to create new neural pathways and really got me diving deep into the neuroscience, neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, understanding that, how it affects my well-being, my mental and emotional state and accessing these different spiritual experiences so it's really cool having Dr. John on. We discussed a wide variety of things. And I think the real foundation of this conversation is the question, what is mind? And it's something that Dr. John has really been exploring with some of the research he's been doing is really finding out what is mind? Where does it live? I think this old story of scientific reductionist and materialist, you know, they would say the, the eye center or the mind lives within the brain. But what Dr. John is saying and some of the discoveries that he's had of the intelligence uh, down to the cellular level and how nature is intelligent and how all of these things work together. Uh, And it's really a profound conversation. We discover a wide variety of different topics and it's really revolved around uh, well-being, health, what we're going through collectively and this this mind-body connection. It's really beautiful. Uh, Dr. John uh, has a book out. There'll be a link in the show notes. Make sure you go check it out if you're interested in this podcast. And for those of you that are premium members, make sure you go into the Inner Circle community. Link in the show notes to check out the bonus material because Dr. John dropped some real wisdom on brain health and well-being and some of the things that you can really do to implement in your everyday life to really show up and uh, continue to heal, not just uh, your own life, but just this collective experience we're going through. If you're not a part of the inner circle, it's $7 a month. You get a part, become a part of the inner community around this podcast where you provide bonus material like extended episodes, solo casts, stuff just for the inner community of this podcast. There's a link in the show notes. Go check it out. $7 a month. It's as much as a Starbucks, one cup of coffee. And you get four bonus episodes plus access to me. I'm really excited to be super active on there and actually engaging with people around the podcast, around the guests and answering any questions you might have. If you want direct access to me and, and, and the community that I'm building, uh, really excited about continuing to cultivate that. I'd love to see you there. If you don't feel called to be a part of it and support the podcast in that way, a really easy way to support this podcast is to leave a five-star review, say a few nice words. If there's anything in this podcast that I think might benefit or resonate with somebody you know, go ahead and share it with them as well. Thank you all so much for the continued support. I'm really excited about continuing to bring better guests on more information and really just including you in this conversation. Before we get started, I wanted to say this podcast is brought to you by The Heart Collective. We are super excited about the relaunch of this community. We got an app. We are providing a ton of value, a ton of content, not just to elite athletes anymore, but we're opening up to our inner circle. There's yoga flow, uh, kettlebell movements, there's guided meditations, Uh, different articles, podcast recommendations. There is a ton of value within this community, all on an app that we white labeled. Um, If you check it out, go to theheartcollective.com. That's H-A-R-T, theheartcollective.com. If you are somebody that is focused on this healing journey, this healing path, and wanting to reach uh, new levels of self-awareness and growth and self-development and love and presence, go check out The Heart Collective. This is my passion project. It is something I've put my heart and soul into, and I'm really excited to continue to cultivate this community. And I would love to see you be a part of it. It's really about healing the heart of humanity, and we're all in this together. So go check out theheartcollective.com, and I'm excited to see you and connect with you on the inside. Without further ado, enjoy the podcast with Dr. John Leaf. Dr. John Leaf, how are you doing? 
I'm great. And how are you? I'm glad we can talk. Yeah, I'm so excited to have a conversation. You're obviously a really wise man, really knowledgeable man about some of the stuff I'm very passionate about and interested in as well. And I know that this is going to be a great conversation for my audience to listen to. Uh, Maybe do a little introduction about who you are and um, we can drop in from there. Sure. So I'm a a neuropsychiatrist uh, who I've practiced mainly in hospitals uh, and specialized brain injury programs for many years. Uh, And I've specialized in the interface of complex patients that have medical, neurological, and psychiatric issues all at once that are, I deal with fairly serious problems, although I'm aware of non-serious problems. Uh, And I've run many brain injury programs over the years, long before it was widely known how important it was. Uh, So I've been doing that. And um, naturally, I am in the middle of what is the mind, because does how physical problems affect the mind and how mental states affect the body and the neuro and how it all fits together. So I've often wondered about all that. And I've studied neuroscience, used to lecture on neuroscience. So about 10 years ago, I began a website to sort of search for what is mind and where is it in nature? Uh, And I um, wrote, it's basically fairly scientific, but what I would do is take uh, fairly advanced uh, scientific journals, the top journals, and I basically translate the gobbledygook of receptors and genes and all the words that no one can understand and translate that into English. And I did that for many years until I realized that I should write a book because there wasn't a book describing what I was finding. So I went through a lot about the human brain and found that there is, you know, we're looking for modules in the human brain, modules for this and that, and it was never found. So there's no center for subjective experience. There's no way to explain subjective experience through structures of the brain. And they mainly only looked at neurons anyway, not through astrocytes and the other cells, which are just as important. So in any case, um, and each neuron is not, they used to think there's a brain, there's a center for this and a center for that, but really every neuron is highly connected. So it, things happen all over the brain all at once. We could talk about that later. But so I started looking at smaller brains, at animals and insects. I wrote about bees and I had the honor to write with some great uh, experts on, on animals. So how intelligent bees and ants and termites are, I wrote about all that, it's all on my website. And then I began more focusing on cells because they're intelligent and they show very intelligent behavior and first microbes. But then I realized all the human cells are all talking with each other and they're all talking with microbes and even viruses are part of that conversation. So I began to realize after a while that, and and the reason why I know it's not obvious is because of the gobbledygook and the jargon. But the fact is everything in biology is based on intelligent cells talking to each other and having elaborate conversations. And so I wrote uh, a book called The Secret Language of Cells. uh, And, you know, people like Andy Weil said it was a new paradigm and Ray Kurzweil said it was very important for thinking about what consciousness is. But actually, I never speculated in the book. The book is just a description, sort of a panoramic view of, of the life of cells, and you draw your own conclusion of how smart they are. I just sort of basically give the life of the cell, and, it, and it's fairly obvious to anyone that it's a very elaborate scene going on there, and that everything that goes on is like an elaborate conversation. So in any case, I still do my practice as a neuropsychiatrist, and uh, I'm now working on a book, another book, where I'll expand that into uh, from brain, you know, communication and cooperation from brains and society down to cells and molecules. So that's, that's a fast version of my story. I love it. A lot to unpack there because what you said is, is the initial question of really trying to answer the question of what is mind, what is this subjective experience, which is the wider lens of what is consciousness, what makes us actually aware. And I think the adopted mainstream narrative in science, at least, is that the soul or the brain or the, or the subjective experience of who we are originates in the brain 
which is what you're saying is there's no actual place to find where that is. So what have you found oh, and discovered? No proof for that. That's a, an assumption of materialists who don't want to look at what's really happening because they even want to say the, the conventional view of science is that mind doesn't really exist because they can't explain it. So they just say it's a, it sort of emerges from the molecules of the brain uh, or the electricity of the brain or the quantum of the brain, whatever. But the bottom line is that there's no evidence for that at all. It's an assumption. And the fact of the matter is our current science has no way, zero way of explaining consciousness. So my assumption, and again, I don't speculate on my website, but I do have I'm looking for material that might be consistent with the notion that mind is an integral part of, of, of nature, of physics. You know, there's physics, chemistry, biology, but mind is like matter and energy. It's like an integral part of, uh, of nature and sort of describing how that works. And my book is about how that works in cells. And to me, if cells are very intelligent, that says a lot about uh, life because you don't need a brain. Cells don't have a brain, yet they operate like they do have a brain. The microbes operate like they have a brain, uh, amoeba do. So it's a, it's a it, you can't say it's in brains. And even if you look at brains, what we're doing is in between our brains. It's not in my brain or your brain, it's in between and it's everywhere. It's on the internet. And uh, so uh, you can't say mind is in a brain, uh, really. So in any case, that's the short answer. How would you how would you define mind when you're talking about mind, right? Because I mean, you just talked about earlier before the show started about your meditation practice. And I think once you develop meditation practice and understand that you can, there's something that is observing the mind, something that is observing the thoughts. And when you can actually create that space and witness the thoughts coming through and realize like there is something else that it has to be here to observe what those thoughts are and creating that, that wider lens experience, what is the mind and how would you define that? Well, I must say your uh, question is very good and that you're an extremely, you're an extraordinary intelligent ex-football player, I must tell you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Breaking the stereotype. <laughs> yeah, way, way beyond. So in any case, uh, the, um, so it, there is no definition for mind. There is no definition for intelligence. There is no definition for consciousness in science. So we have to go really outside of science. and uh, But it's obvious to everyone what it is. I mean, everyone knows what mind is and everyone experienced subjective experience. And it's obvious that there are conscious and unconscious aspects to it. And that a lot, what you're describing is that most people are on automatic pilot most of the day. And occasionally they know what they're doing. And uh, it's like driving a car. You know, at first you have to pay attention. And then after a while, you don't pay attention. You're just driving and, it, and you don't get in accidents. And you're, you're, you're on an automatic pilot uh, that's working fine. Um, and then occasionally you... And, and breath is like that. Breath is uh, automatic, but it's the one physiological thing that you can alter through uh, conscious awareness. You can change the breath, which is why you have a lever into the unconscious there, because you have an unconscious process that's wired both unconscious and conscious, and you can therefore change it. You can't just change your heart rate. You can't just change uh, other things, the flow of oxygen in and out of the alveoli. You can't change your kidney function, but you can change your breath. So that's extremely useful. And what it does is it triggers the vagus nerve and uh, that eventually causes the, the relaxation, the breathing. What's, what's interesting about uh, the vagus nerve and breathing and meditation is that we understood why you could lower your heart rate, make your gut work calm and calm your muscles. That's pretty clear. But it was never clear how meditation would increase immunity and how it would affect immune cells. And that was always very mysterious until this new science that I describe in my book, where I go into great detail about how the immune system and the brain are talking to each other all the time. And it's funny, Harvard Business Review uh, I never thought it was a business book, but suddenly they reviewed the book and they said the thing that was exciting to them, and I was kind of shocked they were interested in, is that um, 
there is no separation at all. And the mind is the body and the body is the mind because the same amount of communication is going on between all the cells. You can't say it's in the brain. It's really all the cells of the body. They were very excited by that. But um, so how would meditation affect immunity? Well, it's through these communication signals. Uh, so it was discovered that that same vagus nerve can affect the spleen and actually send out these signals, the cytokine signals that are the, the signals that affect immune signals. So meditation will affect like 200 different immune uh, genes. And uh, the more you meditate, the better it is. So it's like a Pavlovian thing where you train your immunity to be better and better. Uh, and these immune neuro circuits are, are new. And there's some other manifestations. Like, let me just elaborate a little bit on the immune neuro, because that gives a lot of understanding to some of this. Um, so it, it was never thought that there were immune cells in the brain, except for the microglia. That's an immune cell that in the fetus goes to the brain and then lives its life there and has its children there and sort of hangs around taking care of neurons. It's one of the three brain cells. Uh, but there's no T cells and the T cells are the master immune cells that travel through the body. But what was discovered is that in the cerebral spinal fluid, uh, and now the cerebral spinal fluid is something football players like because it cushions the brain, but everyone thought it was just a cushion, but it isn't. It's actually a river of communication between all the cells. They're sending signals through the fluid and then the cells that uh, create the fluid and border that with the blood, the choroid cells are, are, are vital to signaling between the brain cells and the body. But it, what was found is that there's about 500,000 T cells in the cerebral spinal fluid and they're signaling to the neurons. Well, what are they signaling about? Well, one thing, for example, is when we get sick, the T cell sends a signal to the neuron, create the sick feeling. And you get the fever, you feel bad, you lie down. And that's because the T cell wants to use the energy to fight the virus and not uh, waste it on moving around. So you, you lie down and only the T cell can tell the neuron to go back to normal consciousness. And the T cell sending a pulse, keep normal consciousness going, keep normal cognition because otherwise, so, so what, what uh, in the fetus, the fetus makes about a trillion brain cells, and then it's all pruned down to about 100 billion. It's really 86 billion. But in any case, then only about 1,000 a day are born, and half of them go to the nose to refresh the nose signals. Half could become memory cells. And these memory cells every day associate with new memories. So when you uh, remember something, that's a new memory, or you learn something new, you basically associate it somehow. We don't understand how with that cell and then other things. And what happens is that you need that steady flow of brain cells to feel normal cognition. So when you get depressed, the T cell sends a signal to the stem cells in the neurons, make less of those memory cells, and then you get that brain fog of depression. And that's what the brain fog is. There's less memory cells being created. When depression is cured through whatever, walking in the woods, uh, jogging, medications, shock treatment, uh, uh, meditation, whatever, the T cell now says make more normal cells and the brain fog goes away. The same thing happens with chronic stress. Acute stress, you get better memory, but chronic stress, you, you get the same brain fog. So that's a, a communication. That's Those are communications of one or the other. And the in the other direction, the neurons are talking to the T cells. And one thing I already mentioned is how the neurons are telling the T cells and the immunity to make more immune function. So the neurons control immune function. But there's one other thing that'd be of interest uh, to athletes is it was never understood how acupuncture can cure pain until these neuroimmune circuits were found. And what was found, and this is again described in my book in the section on pain and inflammation. Um, and it's, again, it's in simple language. I hope I'm, uh, I wrote it. What people say about my book is that anyone can read it because I've eliminated jargon. But what happens here is that you go to the wrist and you have an acupuncture point. Now in the West, you want to think, what is acupuncture? Well, it's energy flow. And so we have the idea of a flow of meridians, but we have no idea what meridians are because they're not allied with neurons and they're not allied with blood vessels. What are they? Well, some people think they're electricity traveling through fascia, which may be true, but definitely 
they are also this. So what happens is they triggered a, uh, uh, and they looked, and it's amazing science can find cells, they're so tiny, but the, what they found under the point is a T cell sitting there, which was triggered, and then the T cell moves, sends a signal to the neuron, and then it goes through the neuron and creates uh, the pain effect in the other part of the body. So again, that's the talking of the neuron with the immune cells and the immune cells with the neuron back and forth. So anyway, I, I'm far adrift of your question of what is mine, <laughs> uh, but clearly I think mind exists in versions at every level, including yeah. the cells and including the molecules and yeah. obviously the humans. Yeah, and it seems like the majority of everything that's happening in our reality and in our life is unconscious patterns that we're not actually aware of. We have a very small awareness of what actually is going on. And so all this stuff that's under the hood, even like the intelligence of ourselves, like you just explained, all of this stuff is connected. And I just want to go back to a point because I think it's really powerful for what we're going through collectively, um, you know, with this pandemic and with that health issues and with viruses. And you said something very simple of how meditation can really help immune response. And I just want to dive into that a little bit more because the, you know, I think when people are in a fear state, a fight or flight state, that sympathetic nervous system is triggered within their bodies. It actually can lead to really debilitating health issues. If it's sustained, like it's really about meditation is slowing down and dropping into that parasympathetic nervous system and slowing the nervous system down. And then you're adding this communication to the, the neuro um, immune cells and the response that that does. Can you dive into that a little bit more and the importance of really finding that centered and that presence and getting out of the stories that fear creates because it actually does have a physiological response? Well, meditation does a lot of things. I actually wrote an article six years ago, 1915, 2015, that's still- 1915, ooh. <laughs> I wasn't around then, but- yeah. uh, You figured out the secret to, to longevity. That's the thing. <laughs> so um, I describe, you know, hundreds of effects of meditation. Uh, so it's a, it's a vast story, but one of them is, is an incredible effect on many, many aspects of immunity, making positive changes through signaling. Again, the cytokines are, are special signals and neurons use, they don't just use neurotransmitters and immune cells do use neurotransmitters and they both use cytokines, which are the hundreds of different signals for immune cells. And um, meditation also, of course, affects the brain and affects, uh, the um, it's called the default mode network. It's it's uh, they thought there was one of them originally, and that's sort of the eye sensation when you're daydreaming. When you're not doing anything with your brain, the thing that you feel is you is the default network saying that's who you are. That's they think that's the closest to like who someone is, but there are actually five or six different default mode networks. But in any case, the it is a sort of a neutral observing thing. And that's why daydreaming can be a very positive thing also. Uh, also, uh, walking in the woods is immediately meditation if you measure it. You know, it has a, a, an immediate effect on the brain. But meditation um, is a way into conscious thinking uh, as opposed to unconscious. So you're actually strengthening the observer. You've already mentioned that. So the part of the mind that is the witness and the observer is being strengthened by minimizing the intrusion on that of the chaos involved in from life and 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 the constant fearfulness as you've mentioned the sympathetic fearfulness uh, the fight and flight stuff uh, which um again the 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 misinterpretation of dna and and evolution is that the fight and flight is the basis of life which is really a misinterpretation because it's very clear that 98% of what's going on at the cellular level is cooperation and cells working together and communicating in networks. Uh, and when the fear thing comes in, of course, they cooperate and they function to uh, ward off uh, a danger. But, and again, the dangers today are not what they were, uh, you know, 100,000 years ago when things were evolving in a particular way or a million years ago when they were evolving in a particular way. Uh, so it's an evolving type of stress that we feel. And again, uh, going to a place where you're not intruded upon 
by, I've written some posts about gossip and about um, how first impressions are very significant. They, they're very profound, like the first smell you had when your mother's cooking, perhaps, or the first kiss you had. That particular smell, that impression is, is very, very strong. It, it's unrealistic and it, it can color uh, a lot. And it, what it shows you is that if you make a negative statement about someone, to someone, that's the first impression they get, and that's going to color how they deal with this person. So, but we're bombarded by the, those today uh, with media. We're bombarded by uh, stuff that, and we have to spend a lot of energy um, avoiding the influences of the media today because you could just be taken over by the news cycle and by the chaos and the fearfulness of the new virus, the old virus, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, I think and, that's a, an important point, right? Is really being careful of what you consume. And I just want to dive into, cause like, you know, some of the work I do and some of the kind of the secrets that I've found out is really, and it's kind of like what the mystics have been saying for millennia and all the spiritual texts of like, first, you must embody the feeling you're looking for, not looking for it outside yourself. And then the thing that you desire will be attracted to you, right? Like, for instance, being in a state of wanting to accomplish something or wanting to achieve something in order to experience an internal state. Let's say I will be happy once I get the raise, get the house, get the girlfriend, you know, fill in the blank the thing that you're striving for to create that thing. But in reality, in the science that you're kind of talking about is really using, it's the stories that we tell about ourselves and who we are and the importance those have, not just on our experience of life, but on our actual physiological health and the ability for these cells to communicate and the intelligence that they have. And they're listening to our internal landscape. And so all of the, the going inward and internal work that the mystics have been talking about, science is starting to catch up and see the actual importance that that has not just on our state of being and our well-being and our mental health and emotional health, but actually our immune response and our, our physical health as well. Um, and talk about the, the, the importance of the stories and how we can actually shift those internal dialogues. I think you said really being careful the content we consume because that really does have an effect. As, as much as you want to say watching the news won't have an effect on you, you're lying to yourself and you're glued to it. And there's this fascinating human nature thing that we really like negativity and wanting to know what's going on in the world. And I mean, it's known that the all these media companies use fear to trigger the response to keep you glued to the TV, which can create the, the very health pandemic that we're facing. So talk a little bit about the importance of that, that, that subjective experience and how we can actually shift that and not looking for it outside of ourselves, but really doing the inner work through things like meditation. Well, yeah, you raise a lot of important points there. Um, so... My writing is from the Western science point of view, because I believe that there's enough information that I can take the top journals and write stuff that undercuts the materialism and the way we're trying to explain things. But there's a limit to that. And the other side of it is looking at the mind from the descriptions of the mind, like you say, of the mystics and the people who have actually studied the ramifications of the uh, the unfolding internal experiences of mind as you sift through them in meditation, uh, these aren't in Western science and they're not going to be for quite a while until we have a completely different uh, view of what physics is and what energy is. And that's not happening immediately. Although I, I'm beginning to write about uh, electron, uh, the world of electrons is very significant and that may be the limit of what we can learn, but that may be significant to Western science beginning to understand some of these things. But right now there's no way. So you have to look at people who have studied the mind from the other end. And of course there, what you're trying to do is, so we're obsessed with a fake notion of happiness. Um, what people call happiness isn't happiness, and uh, it, it's sort of an excitement um, or an infatuation, or uh, it's a difference between infatuation and, and love. I mean, in other words, we say, I love an ice cream, I love uh, my girlfriend, I love God, but they're not the same things. I mean, you know, loving, um, uh, loving a thing and loving a person is different than experiencing that we are all one person and that you're loving the fundamental 
state of being that is in everyone and that you see everywhere around you and you see in other people. And But it's very hard to understand that if you don't cut through the influences. So you actually have to methodically get, you can't eliminate them because that's too active. And what happens is your energy messes with your mind. So you have to sort of let it go. So you sort of just let, let things drop off you in a systematic way of all the things that you're worrying about. So you have to go through, you know, your house, your money, you know, your, your love life, your children, you know, the virus, politics, blah, 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 blah. And even death, we have to come to grips with death. So this is a process of going back and back, uh, but then you say, well, well, what's behind that? What, what does that mean? People think that is the, their mind or all these thoughts. People think that the thoughts they're having are the mind. And unless they believe enough to try it, they're not going to experience what's beyond thought. And beyond thought is a different thing than happiness in the sense that we are obsessed with getting through drugs and through excitement and through uh, pornography and through whatever, mm. uh, you know, so. Yeah. It's the whole question of, of who am I? Right. And like, right. That's the old who am I, yes. Ramana Maharshi, uh, you know, mm. the original masters of who am I? I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this, but you actually have to look at all the things you think you are and then realize you can't, do much more than you're doing mm. and let it go for a moment. Uh, the fear is that if you let it go, um, who are you? Lose it. You, you won't come back to it or something, you know, you'll stop doing what you need to do. And the fact yeah. is it, it flips back. The, 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 the covers of the internal state flip back very rapidly. So you don't have to worry about that. And then of course, there's the problem as you go deeper in meditation of you have, um, uh, I have a great idea suddenly, wow. So you've made space to have new thoughts. So because there's less stuff taking up your brain, suddenly you get a great idea. And mm -hmm. the problem is if you follow that great idea, you're gonna lose your meditation. Maybe good to follow the great idea There's some invention or whatever. Yeah. So there has to be a way maybe to jot it down then go back or to let it go and, and trust that it'll be there. But you even have to get beyond exciting great ideas or depressing bad ideas or terrible experiences. All of that has to be, uh, let me mention one thing. I mentioned the new brain cells. So um, I always advise so there's a thing called reconsolidation of memory, where as that new, when we re-remember something, a, a new brain cell is sort of associated with that. And that brain cell then, after a while, creates connections uh, and, 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 and grows and eventually takes over the old memory. Um, and this happens also with good sleep. Like you need to sleep in order to learn. The, the memory consolidation happens in sleep. But... So what, what I advise is to re, like if you have trauma, which of course interferes with meditation tremendously, uh, the constant remembering of the negativity of the negative event. So what happens is you re-remember it, but you add just a little bit of love, a little bit of something positive that's happened and just re-remember it. And, and you slightly chip away at the uh, impact and if you keep doing that over time, you can actually chip away at the memory and, and alter the memory in, in a new understanding. So I always advise that people do that uh, as part of their de-stressing to uh, de-traumatize themselves as well, because that, of course, is a big interference with getting behind thoughts to the, to the state where, and, and in that state beyond the thoughts, the parasympathetic, the uh, things relax, the breathing is relaxed, the gut is relaxed, everything is relaxed. But then there's a actual um, a state that is described as uh, understanding and a sort of a, a blissful state that, that is not what we call happiness. In other words, it's not 
you know, ecstatic. It's not, the ecstatic and the depression are just two sides of one hormonal coin. They're Mm. just up and down. There's something behind that that is a different level of, and and the word, that's the problem with the word happiness. We can't use it for that because what we really mean by happiness is I love an ice cream cone, you know. Uh, It's a state of being, right? It's not necessarily an emotion, but it's a state of being underneath it, which is peeling the layers back, coming back to their beating. And how do you embody that? Emotions are highly tied to the body. Mm -hmm. And again, getting beyond the physical sensations to a state that is beyond physical sensations and emotional sensations. Mm. Yeah, let's talk about the, the the trauma a little bit because trauma, I think, is is a misunderstood uh, topic. And, you know, it really is just the experience of an experience, right? It's not the actual experience that's traumatic. It's how you respond to it. Maybe it happens too soon, too fast. It's overwhelming in the moment that it happens and it creates this trauma ex- response of the experience. And so that, you know, gets triggered into your unconscious and it might get triggered up and it, and it really creates this uh, it can create a wide range of different experiences, but this is why that the MDMA therapy psycho assisted therapy that's coming out is really revisiting those traumatic experiences in a state of, you know, loving bliss that the MDMA can help assist with. And then seeing that experience from a different, maybe wider perspective actually helps heal it. And there's some brain chemistry stuff happening. Like you just said of, of rewiring the brain connection and chemistry in relation to that experience to reshape that experience and how it affects your day-to-day life in the present moment. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the MDMA. Um, So I was at Harvard Medical School and I was taking two years off in research. And from 1969 to 72, I taught a course at the Kennedy School of Government on psychedelic drugs. And if you Google my name, John Leaf, MD, with psychedelics, you, I, I have an article on my website about the research that went on back then. Um, all this research that's going on today was already done. It was done in the 60s. There were people at the National Institute of Health, Walter Pontke, uh, Stanislav Grof, uh, were both at NIH, and uh, Pontke was into um, uh, high-dose therapy, uh, with psychedelics, and Groff was into microdosing of psychedelics and um, doing sort of an analysis, a, a more conventional psychotherapy with the psychedelic dosing, whereas Ponkey was doing what Johns Hopkins is doing, the big um, experience. Uh, that, uh, And I wrote a paper for the American Psychi- Psychiatric Journal showing, in 1972, showing that the effect of chronic use of psychedelics back then was not really negative. It it, it moved people to a spiritual direction of some kind. In other words, some people became Eastern oriented, but some did not. Some just became charity oriented or some became better Catholics and some became better Jews. It was really not a particular religion. It was just moving the the dial a little bit uh, from materialism towards spiritualism because uh, the experience is so deep in the large dosing that was going on back then and even the small dosing. So in any case, um, I did, so I ran this course for three years with the top researchers and Walter Clark, who did the work with uh, recidivist murderers, uh, did the experiment um, where priests got uh, psilocybin on Good Friday and showed that they had their biggest religious experience. Anyway, all that was done, and then it was outlawed for 40 years. I mean, research was outlawed. That's how insane this was. I mean, the the most interesting psychoactive chemicals of all time were outlawed to even do research, which is ridiculous. But in any case- Why do you think that is? I mean, and and the impact that it's had. I mean, these these medicines are obviously coming to the the forefront of kind of psychiatry and the science. They're coming back and they're having a profound impact and the efficacy is, is really you know, the, the basis of, I want you to know the basis of all of that rejection of psychedelics was pure racism. Basically, mm. they believed that the marijuana users were jazz musicians. Anslinger, the people, the head of the uh, of the drugs, believed that the evil black musicians were using psychedelics and destroying the white youth. So they made it illegal to have marijuana and to use all these things. So anyway, all this, uh, I've written about it. 
but it's a long history because after 72, when it was all made illegal, I just went on with my profession, became an expert in neuroscience and psychopharm. But it is there, and I did write a post on it. But so we're now reintroducing um, psychedelics, which again have a unique effect. You know, it's funny uh, when Ramdas, who I knew very well actually, went to, uh, I was the one who met him. When he brought Mukta, when he first came back from uh, India, the very first time I met him, we went up to his house, and a group of us used to hang out at his father's home, and that's when Ramdas started, and he even uh, mentioned me uh, in one of the books. But the point is not that, not to mention, not to be arrogant or anything, but just that. That's a um, cool name drop. I want to hear more about Ramdas and hanging out with them. These guys dropped LSD together. Yeah. So what he said was interesting is that he went to his guru and Mayor Baba, one of the great Sufi leaders at the time, said, take it three more times and then stop. And then the reason why they said that is that in the spiritual, the real spiritual hierarchy, not, the, you know, America's like babies compared mm-hmm. to the guru, you know, real. Yeah, people real, showing up and actually embodying the. Yogic masters. Yes. I've been to India many times. I've been there. I went there at least 15 times. And that's a whole other story. But in any case, uh, the psychedelics do show that there's more than materialism. There's no question about that. And it, there, the studies show that dying cancer patients feel much better about dying 80% feel much better. And that research was done way back and it's being redone now. Again, that's in my article about it uh, through psychedelics. So they're very valuable. But if you're a spiritual seeker, there's a limit to what it does. And after and it shows you that, but then you drop back into a materialistic consciousness. And it's only by really working on your consciousness, like you're talking about, chipping away at false identifications and false things, who am I, uh, that you actually create a permanent understanding of who you really are. Psychedelics sort of zip in and out. And after a while in spiritual practice, they can be destructive uh, in terms of not allowing you to very methodically and slowly get this deeper um, yeah, just another form of escapism if you're using it to try and find God and escape the present moment because you're searching right, you're for it outside yourself. Levels, like, yeah, and that journey really is an infinite excitement. path away from now, right? And so it's really about the integration and how important that is to have a spiritual experience through a psychedelic experience and really integrating that into this every day because this is where we live. This is where we are. And so many people are trying to escape it, right? And there's that bit bigger question of, you know, the mental and emotional health crisis that's, that we're facing. And as a, a neuropsychiatrist, I mean it's got to be really exciting that psychedelics are becoming more widely studied and available. And I just want to hear your perspective on the impact that they are actually going to have and the importance as a part of this kind of grand awakening that needs to take place because we are kind of headed towards a cliff collectively with what we got going on. And it's just, you know, the obesity problem, the mental health crisis and all this stuff that we're not really being able to have real solutions. And it seems like psychedelic therapy is one of those solutions that can really help move the needle in a positive way. Well, personally, I have mixed feelings because it's very frustrating to me because we knew this in 1970. And that's how many years ago is that? That's 50 years. Oh, wow. 50. Yeah. I mean, my God, I was teaching about this and then, and running a course at Harvard, having the experts and we knew all this already. It's a uh, wider it was, lens of power dynamics, right? Like if you have a population that starts thinking for themselves. Basically, basically racial politics wiped mm-hmm. it out. Mm-hmm. And you're right. The, the world is a mess um, and the wrong people are running it. And science is a mess because the wrong people are running it also. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not exploring. I mean, I love science. That's what I do all day. I read science. I'm in the world. Yeah, there's a difference between science and scientism, right? Uh, real science. I'm looking at what is nature. and But I use conventional biochemistry and biophysics and biology to, to try to find out what, what mind is deep, deep inside of cells and molecules. See, see to me, molecules are intelligent. 
And that's the only way to explain DNA is that you have codes there, is that actually the electrons are intelligent also. It has to be. That's what I'm writing about now because, and I'm doing this all through conventional uh, quantum chemistry. Um, my daughter says, my father can read quantum mechanics, but can't uh, program his cell phone. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm a mixed bag, but I, I- How would you describe quantum chemistry? I've never heard of, of that specifically. Quantum chemistry is very important. Um, Linus Pauling, the great guru of vitamin C, is the one, the Nobel Prize winner, who invented quantum chemistry. So basically, there's a lot of misunderstanding of quantum mechanics, all the weird things that happen to basically, we can only know down to a certain level. And that's basically based upon the size of electrons and the size of x-rays. We can only know what we can visualize through gadgets using small, and, and once we get below that, we, we don't know what's going on. So we're only gonna know so far into the structure of, of matter and energy. But what we do know is that if you look at the level of the atom and the, uh, the electron is very, very important. All chemistry occurs because electrons move from place to place. So they move from this to this, they jump, and they create a connection between atoms that make molecules. And the building of molecules is how you build DNA, how you build proteins, how you build everything. Everything happens through this attraction that's really like a magnetic, electromagnetic attraction. But the way that happens is through orbitals. In other words, in the atom, it used to be thought it's like a solar system, but it isn't. It isn't a solar system. What it is, is there's a fuzzy area over here, like a cloud, and the electron is somewhere in there and it's vibrating and it's like a wave vibrating, but it's also a particle if you catch it, uh, which you can't do really. But in any case, so it's a wave and a particle in this area over here, 99%. The little 1% is open because it can also squirt away in a different direction. But the point is there are these things called orbitals where electrons live near the nucleus. And those orbitals are certain shapes and certain energies and for a, 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 a chemical bond to occur, like water is two hydrogens and an oxygen, for those to come together, what happens is the electron orbitals have to connect. And they connect based upon their shapes and their energy. That's quantum chemistry. The quantum chemistry is measuring those little cloud fuzzballs where electrons are and how they combine to form water. Hmm. So, and it... it, it in order this to understand the next step, right? Because like in school, I remember like the neutron and then the electron going around it in those models. And it was always like orbital, like you're saying. But in fact, what we're figuring out is it is a wave of possibility. Well, of that's false it. because if you have a solar system, that would collapse in a second. It won't stay. Yeah. So if you have a permanent atom. The electron is over here and it's vibrating. Everything in, in matter is vibrating, oscillating. Mm -hmm. And the oscillations create electromagnetic and waves and photons. So uh, an electron jumping around can create a light wave and can communicate that way. And that's what we're learning is how molecules communicate through light waves, through photons or electromagnetic waves. And that's the real way that they combine. Uh, that's how proteins operate. So I, mm -hmm. I'm writing all this in a way that hopefully is understandable. But the quantum chemistry was the original. So in order to make a simple explanation of the water molecule, it takes 30 pages of mathematical formulas, okay? I mean, it's really ridiculously, I happen to study math, but it's ridiculously complicated. So you don't need all that. You just need to know that the math creates what's called orbitals, which are certain shapes of, there's a circle one, there's a barbell one, there's multiple barbells, there's a one that looks like an arc, and these orbitals connect and they create molecules. Now, to me, in order to understand DNA, we're creating a molecule with a certain letter. That has to happen from the electron movement and the orbitals. So that's where I'm coming from in my new book, but it's a little far out. Um, mm. So I don't It is know all far out. I mean, this is all like emerging science, which is really exciting, but it seems like you know, the long tail of things that shift and change and people's like the collective narrative that's happening, 
people are still so attached to this like materialistic reductionist scientific viewpoint on the world, this Newtonian physical universe, when this new emerging quantum field, quantum mechanics, quantum, whatever is like both wave of possibility and physical particle, both and universe. And science is starting to understand this and actually track it and write about it and discover it. But there's still just 99% of the population still stuck in this old way of being. So how do you see it coming into the surface and and shifting our actual understanding of the universe? Well, there's another thing. There's pseudo-knowledge about it. So you get a lot of new age woo-woo based upon, oh, the quantum does this, therefore mind works that way. Well, it's not Mm -hmm. that simple. And the fact that particles can communicate at great distances, the fact that they can tunnel through matter, that's how photosynthesis works. The fact that uh, they can squeak around things by being a wave one moment and a particle another moment uh, doesn't just out of the box explain the mind and people are trying to do that. So we're going to need a whole different science where mind is part of, uh, uh, it's like, it's not an electron, but a whole uh, field of matter and it's, I don't know what it's going to be. To me, it's, it's got to be a part, part of, of the conversation, though, right? Because modern scientists is like pushing that away, pushing consciousness outside of the actual story. But every single theory, scientific theory or explanation we've ever had, you have to atta- take into account the observer effect, right? Like the observer that is creating this thing is creating this entire subjective experience. And so it's hard to actually get any real scientific understanding when you don't take into account each one of us has a profoundly unique experience of the subjective experience of reality. Right. So you have on the one side, the materialists say matter uh, creates everything, matter and energy. And then you have over here, the spiritualists like Deepak Chopra and biocentrism that says the mind creates matter, but they can't prove that. They may be right. So you have these two completely different worldviews. Um, one which we're proving through detailed biochemistry and, and you know, electronics and et cetera. And the other is postulated, um, which may be correct, but it's not provable by any instruments or stuff we have. So I have to go back to the real teachers of mind on this side, on the side, and meanwhile, try to chip away at it which I'm trying to do through slogging through um, the Western science, because I feel there's enough of Western science that shows that undercuts materialism and shows mm-hmm. that mind exists and mm-hmm. it exists in, in matter itself. In other words, matter it has mind. So that's yeah. my, so well, I, I got to say, I really appreciate guys like you and people like you who are really trying to bridge the two, because I think we're at this day and age when the, the mystics of, of the millennia trying to share their wisdom and then science kind of going so far out into the materialistic viewpoint. But it's, it really is coming back into this, this they're kind of connecting and, and, and really showing back up for one another, which is a really exciting time. Right. Where do you see this new science, new discoveries and this, this where the world's at? Like, where do we go from here? And what does this mean for the future of humanity with everything that we're going through? Because it feels like we're going through, and this is like a wider conversation, I know, but I just want to get your perspective with your experiences. Where are we headed? Uh, There's the concept of Gaia, which is that the earth is basically a super organism. And I think there's a lot of reason to, there's a lot of reasons to look at that view. Uh, and it is very clear to me, having studied viruses and microbes, that they are the dominant creatures, not us, and that they are affecting the atmosphere and that they're the ones that will determine what happens in the future. And it's our cells communicating with microbes that allow us to survive and that help the cooperation of the microbes and the viruses are what build uh, our very elaborate uh, uh, organisms. And but the uh, but the dynamic. So, you know, plants can't survive without fungus. They would never have come out of the sea. The communication of all the trees through fungal wires, uh, the microbes communicating with our cells and and the viruses carrying all the information. Um, So the point is the future 
may not include humans, uh, but it's definitely going to um, include the microbes uh, and the viruses. Uh, they're the dominant feature. The humans uh, in the last two, 300 years have gone off in a, in a materialistic direction. They've accepted a neo-Darwinist view. No, I'm not, I, I, I love evolution. I'm all for evolution, but to me, evolution is much more complicated. If you really want to learn about evolution, there's a book called Evolution 2.0 by Perry Marshall that describes the five new uh, ways to understand evolution that are very important, the epigenetics, the- uh, That's a lot more nuanced, right? But I mean, we are, just in my lifetime, I can understand, of course, we're evolving. I feel like I've evolved from just a, a couple of years ago. So evolution is a thing, but it's so much more nuanced than like, well, like Darwinian, evolutionary biology is not so linear, right? Like we came from here. Well, the Darwinian wants to make it random and they want to make it based only on a brutal uh, jungle competition. But the fact of the matter is, as I said before, 98% of nature is cooperation. Cells cooperate mm. to create organisms. Cells cooperate to create everything that we love. Uh, but the bigger cooperation, the superorganism, which we can see now in the internet, you know, the superorganism of human consciousness is, it was evident in culture and science. That's a thing outside of a human brain, but it's growing and growing and bigger than any brain. But now we have the physical reputation of that, the, mm. the, the, the internet. Uh, so we have this uh, growing um, uh, superorganism, but the, the larger superorganism includes plants. I mean, we're completely dependent. We are complementary with plants. We breathe out oxygen. They breathe, you know, uh, we breathe out CO2 and they breathe out oxygen. And so we're completely complementary, sort of like the way fungus are complementary with plants because they all communicate through the wires of the fungus. Um, so maybe that's why when we just, go into nature, like walk in the, if you go walk in the woods with a beanie, that's an EEG machine, you're immediately meditating. Yeah. No matter who it is. The Japanese it, nature bath. And if you just take a plant and put it in a hospital bed, the patient does better. If you have an apartment and you can look down the road and see a tree, you're doing better. But if you could immerse, if you have plants in your room, but if you could immerse yourself in nature, then, um, so that makes me think that we are complementary with, with nature and plants and that uh, we need them. And there has to be a balance. I mean, you really have to go back to the speech of uh, Chief Seattle, where you have to view uh, the rivers and streams and trees as our brothers and sisters. I mean, the Indians, the Native Americans understood what the materialist scientists do not. Yeah. Western scientists are just greedy. They want things. They want to control everyone. They want all the money. They don't realize we're all one big organism and that we need to help each other and share each other and we have to cooperate. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. To me, uh, the viruses and microbes will decide, really. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah. we're, we're, not, we're not as in much to control as we think. And I think that is the core belief that is... Let me mention something about viruses. Let me mention something about viruses, which people don't understand. Okay. So first of all, viruses are everywhere. There's like, we have a trillion microbes in our gut. There's a hundred trillion viruses around each of those microbes. There's hundreds of trillions of viruses around every cell. They're everywhere. They contain far more DNA, which is information than all the other creatures, combined by a thousandfold. It's almost infinite, the variation of the viral strands that occur. So they are the, they're the catalog. They're the repository of information in nature. And when you look at our cell, our DNA, 2% is now known to be the gene, so-called genes that make the proteins. Another 30% are regulatory uh, DNA that makes RNAs. 8% are from retroviruses, four times as much as our genes. And the, the DNA in those retroviruses, in our cells, create products that are absolutely necessary. Like for example, the syncytium, which is 
the molecule that allows the human placenta was originally a spike molecule like the spike virus in COVID. It was a connecting molecule. And we took that molecule and created the, the placenta. The virus gene creates amylase protein, which we need to uh, for digestion, okay? The viral genes create the factors that we need for stem cells. Like when the guy won the Nobel Prize recently for stem cells, he had four factors that made a muscle cell into a neuron. And those factors all came from the DNA of, of, of viruses in our DNA, from this viral DNA. Now that's just 8%. That's four times as much as our genes. 50% are jumping genes, which are basically viruses creating all kinds of products. And those products, it turns out, are essential for the rapid development of the human brain and for what's called alternative RNA splicing, which creates more and more protein. So our very brain is totally, and the fact that it's so rapidly developed in evolution, the human brain is very dependent upon the viral information that is inside of our cells. So having said that, viruses are helpful to us. They're in the mucus fighting off enemy. The way we have friendly microbes, we also have friendly viruses. There's as many friendly as unfriendly. The reason why some of these viruses are so dangerous is that we're destroying the world and the ecology, and we move into an area where bats had happily lived with this virus for a million years, and then we move in there, suddenly the virus says, oh, wait a minute, here's a human, let me try this. They jump to humans and they like it, and they say, oh yeah, I can live here and multiply here, and then suddenly, wow, there's a billion of them, that's much bigger than a bat, so I can thrive there, and that's how COVID occurs. So mm -hmm. the point is, viruses- The people that COVID affects are the immune compromised and the people that aren't actually taking care of their health in the right way and maybe are activated into these things. And as you just said earlier in the show, the importance of the neuroimmune response and all of these different things, that if you actually take care of your body, there's viruses around us all the time that can potentially have an impact on us, but it's really about taking your own power back and feeding and taking care of your- your body and connecting with it in the right way to not live. We're in a healthy here. dynamic with trillions of viruses. Mm -hmm. They're part of us. I just described a million ways they're part of us. We're not going to separate from viruses. Mm. But what was very exciting to me is that I'm writing my blogs. And then suddenly about five years ago, it was just, I always knew the virus lifestyle is very complicated. I wrote articles on the HIV lifestyle, the Ebola, the, uh, the varicella, the herpes. So I have articles. You can just Google my name and those viruses. And there's this very elaborate lifestyle. I always knew they were quite smart. But then it was discovered five years ago that they have signals just like our cells and that they're part of the conversation. And they're talking to each other just the way uh, microbes are, just the way cancers are, just the way our cells are. They're all talking. So I was very excited by the discovery of the virus signals because it showed that they're integrally part of life. A lot of scientists don't even consider them alive, which is ridiculous. Obviously mm. they're alive. Uh, and the definition of life has to be expanded basically, uh, not the fact that viruses aren't alive because they're very much alive and they're very much part of us. Anyway, I'm playing yeah. You know what's fascinating is even the definition of nature in the dictionary, it says everything except humans. So this, this fundamental belief that we are separate from our surroundings, separate, separate yeah, from nature, totally separate from each other, is the core belief that is leading to our demise and our destruction. And so we shift and reframe that core fundamental belief within everybody. That's, that's the real solution we need, not everything else outside of ourselves. Because if, if we still believe that we are separate from nature, we're going to continue on the same path. And we have to reframe that and re-understand that. Well, to me, the only hope for the world are... People like you are intelligent oh, right. young people who know what's going on and can spread the word that we have to cooperate, that we have to live in a different way, that we have to go back to a simpler lifestyle, uh, that we have to look at nature as our uh, brother and sister. Um, that's the only hope. When I wrote my book, you know, science study of science shows that the way new ideas come in and take over are not what we thought. In other words, the old professors who are making their money on the old ideas, they're making their grants, they never change their mind because they want the money, they want their grants, they want their labs. It's only the young 
people who take on the new ideas and eventually the old professors die off and the new scientists take over. That's how scientific revolutions occur. It is happening. I hope it happens fast enough yeah. uh, because, you know, someone wrote a book, some guy thinks he knows what he's talking about how wonderful the world is and how it's gotten better and better. But, but he was writing for only for rich people. He was just, he was just writing for, for uh, he was talking about the wealthy is what he was mm -hmm. talking about. The fact of the matter is the world is in deep trouble uh, and people like you are the only hope. We need to stop and cooperate. We need to meditate. We need to see through the materialism. And so I'm doing my little thing of trying to show through materialistic science to undercut materialism. That's what I'm trying to do. And I appreciate that. I think that is what's needed is, is we need we need more bridges to understand. And, and it doesn't matter what language you use because a lot of the languages all point to the same thing, the same stuff the mystics say, the same stuff quantum mechanics say. They're, they're trying to point to the same thing, which is understanding this experience of creation and how we can actually find more joy and fulfillment and connection through this and less division and less, less right and wrong, less judgment and really coming back into wholeness. Because what a gift to be human. And we're making it so fucking complicated all the time. So I really appreciate you coming on, Dr. John, and sharing your perspective. I would love um, for you to share a little bit more about the book, where people can find it. We'll have a link in the show notes for people who are interested in reading your book and reading some of your work. Uh, maybe share a little bit about that for the listeners. Well, the book is called The Secret Language of Cells. And um, it's available everywhere. It's in cell biology, it's high up in the sellers of at Amazon and Barnes. You know, it's on every bookseller. Um, it's on my website. If you Google it, it's, I think it's pretty available. My website is called either Searching for the Mind or John Leaf MD. The problem with John Leaf MD is no one knows how to spell it. But so J O I F F. Well, yeah, that name was invented at Ellis oh. Island in 1904. Uh, oh, you know, they, they wanted to sound Anglican, so they invented <laughs> L-I-E-F-F. -E it up for all the ancestors that came came after. Right. So John is J-O-N, which no one understood until uh, The Daily Show, John Stewart. Uh, everyone realized it could be J-O-N. But if you spell it J-O-N-L-I-E-F-F-M-D, that's .com. And that's my Twitter handle also, which I'm very active on Twitter. So uh, J-O-N-L-I-E-F-F-M-D, at John Leaf, M-D, uh, on Twitter. And I put out articles every day. Um, you can search through my website. There's a lot of articles on different topics. Uh, and my book is, is there as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. John. All that stuff will be in the show notes for all of you. Uh, we are going to do an extended episode with some bonus material available to you premium members. If you're not a premium member and you want to be a part of the inner circle community, there will be a link in the show notes. We'd love to see you in there. I'm creating bonus material like these extended episodes solo casts, and you have access to ask me questions. And I'm going to be interacting with the community there. It's $7 a month. Go check it out. If you don't feel called to support the podcast in that way, a great way to support this podcast is to leave, just leave a five-star review, say a few nice words. And if there's anything in this podcast that you think might benefit somebody, you know, go ahead and share it with them. Really appreciate y'all being here. Uh, I love y'all. And thank you, Dr. John. Thank you.